Welcome to the Pepham Podcast, a research into practice conversation between pre-service and in-service teachers. In part two of this Examination P special edition, I'm joined by 52 pre-service teachers and seven practicing teachers to discuss their different approaches to teaching examination physical education. In this part, we explore understanding the practical demands of GCSE and A-level PE, dual coding resources for knowledge recall, diagnostics, exam misconceptions and correction techniques, and retrieval practice in GCSE PE. I hope you enjoy part two of this special edition. I mean, hopefully this should work. I've just spent the whole term teaching on teams. If I can't use it now, that'd be a bit of a waste of all that time. Um, right, so I introduce myself as it's it's loading up now. Uh, so yeah, I'm Tom. Uh, I uh, was a Loughborough PGC student a few years back and also did my master's with Ash. Um, I actually, uh, I'm director of sport at Riverside School in Barking, which actually has an NQT job going at the moment. I know actually a couple of you have already applied for it. Um, deadline is on Thursday. Uh, I didn't say this is a job advert as well. <laughs> yeah, I just got <laughs> direct link in. Uh, normally I do actually, uh, or in the past sort of five, six years, I have done lecture for Ash on innovative stuff, but it looks like I think um, some of the people here might be taking that off me. They've done some great apps. Uh, I teach level two BTEC, GCSE PE, A-level PE, uh, BTEC level three PE and uh, A-level psychology. So I do teach a lot of theory. Ironically, though, today I'm going to talk about practical. Um, so at GCSE PE, how can we design all the way through our programme that for the small amount of sort of percentage that is left in in practical in GCSE PE that we can make the most out of it. I am going to focus predominantly on GCSE uh, and I have researched across exam boards, uh, but I am an AQA moderator myself um, for the practical element. So I'll probably be sort of using some more specific examples there. So GCSE right now, 60% is theory, 40% is what we call non-examined assessment. You'll see it abbreviated to NEA. Um, of which uh, you can see my percentages don't add up there because I didn't change it. The practical makes up 30%, for which 10% of their, 10% um, essentially of their qualification should be in each of their three sports. There is a small amount of variance between the exam boards, but broadly speaking, most of them ask for one team event, football, basketball, netball, one individual, badminton, although that could also be a team one if you're doing it in doubles, um, table tennis, trampolining, uh, and then one more of either one. There's an element of written coursework as well that's within that sort of 40% uh, non-examined stuff, but that varies so much between the different exam boards, I'd be spending all day if I had to explain all of the different variants. Um, so I'm going to focus on the practical to start off with. So first things first, what is actually assessed? It's not just look at someone and go, yeah, they're pretty good at sport, or they can run fast. There's a lot more to it than that. Um, and they do different exam boards. I'm going to try and keep it as generic as possible, but it boils down to this. One is what I'm going to call their performance. Uh, skills and techniques, how, how good are they? How good at that is that of the specific sort of um, textbook techniques? How can they apply it? So in full context and by full context, I'll go more into that later, but I mean games. So an 11-a-side football match. How well can they apply those skills in the games? And then on top of that, the different tactics and decisions that they have to make in those scenarios. And then finally, and, and maybe some people consider this a smaller element, and it probably is, is actually the physical attributes of, of that qualification. Like, do they have the endurance to last an entire game of football or do they have an amazing two minutes at the start and then they're blowing in for the rest of it and they can't move? Um, that would form part of the decision making process as a moderator. So I'm just going to break those down now just looking at performance. 
So this is looking at individual skills and to start off with in isolation. Now, each sport will have a specific list of skills in spec, and that's what makes the P specification so long, is that every single sport on there is broken down. So I've taken a little outline of, of the lacrosse one because it's one that not many people will probably know. But things just to look at this, OK, when, when you're looking at it first time, you've got different positions. So here they've split one side of the table for outfield players and another for goalkeepers. You can see that in some elements of it, they're saying they have to be able to do it right handed and left handed. So you can see um, if you look at point two in passing, right handed and left handed, it says specifically. Now, in football, interestingly, they've changed that where they use the word either. And the reason for that is because when it first came out, there's a huge amount of controversy because there was a video of Lionel Messi scoring a hat trick in a game, but he only used his left foot. He didn't do anything with his right foot. And so Lionel Messi would actually have been graded a seven in GCSEPE. And so that's why they've taken out in football the right and left hand nature of it. Um, and now it says use of either foot. So Lionel, you know, he would now probably just about scrape a 10 out of 10, maybe in game application 24 out of 25, I think maybe. Um, so the other thing, and this is when I go into schools, this is what makes me as a moderator bash my head against the wall is that they literally couldn't make it any clearer AQA about what you need to show and they don't show them all. The amount of times I go and see football and they don't show me heading. And so it's like, well, you've missed a whole part of that criteria. Immediately you drop down 10% straight away. Um, and also progress quickly to challenge to what I'm going to call their challenge ceiling. And I'm going to come on to that later. Just remember that phrase, challenge ceiling. So if you're looking at someone and maybe you're on a GCSE class coming up and maybe you be, might be part of a moderation process and you want to give grades across, it's great for one of the teacher standards that is data and that. Things to think about for performance. Are they in control? Can they confidently and competently do that skill and they're not falling over every time they do it? Can they do it consistently? Is it someone did it once and it was a fluke or every time they've done that badminton serve, it has landed exactly where they wanted it to? Are they successful? Ultimately, again, think volleyball. If you're getting someone to show you a spike and every time they miss the court, well, that's not successful, is it? And then can they do it when they are challenged? I'm going to come back to that later. Application, that second phase of, of what is it? Some call it skill one or skill two, part A, part B. It's the full context. It's in the game. It's a competitive performance. People make mistakes here on athletics because uh, they think it's all isolated skills. Well, actually, it's not. In an athletic sense, this is the a competitive measured throw it should be fully officiated so if i'm watching a video of someone doing a shot put i should be see a video of them doing the shot put stepping into the box the circle correctly not leaving out the front i should see the exact path where the shot lands i should see the video coming up to where it's land and it being measured that's what i reach the full as if it was the olympics that's what we're looking at i think what a lot of schools the mistakes they make is the standard of officiating is too low I think a very easy way to show high levels of challenge is to have an official refereeing everything properly, whether it's small sided games, condition games and 11 aside. I think that's a very, very easy way to do it. Again, how to make an application here, and I don't have time to break it down into each sport. But what you're looking at is does that player have a real and consistent impact on the game? Again, it's not just that person who scores a goal in the first minute and then doesn't touch the ball for the rest of it. That's not a sustained impact on the game. 
are they successful? If there's someone, uh, if they are a bowler and they go at an economy in cricket of about 10, they are not being successful. And you might say that's Jack Leach against Ribshaw Pant in the last test match. Um, but ultimately, he got him out, didn't he, this time? Did he Maybe, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, are they being successful? Do they execute their skills? Is it that they go into a game and their technique has gone to pot? They used, they had the perfect badminton serve first time round, and now it's a foul serve, it's up by their neck, and they're flicking it off because they're losing and they're under pressure. So what is the difference between someone who's a 6 out of 10, and I'm just using this as a generic, all-sport, all all examboards are slightly different in their grading. Let's just say, let's just say for the sake of this, my exam board, everyone is marked out of 10 in the sport. It's challenge. And that is the most important part of this. What does challenge look like? So what we're looking for is, are they doing it at high intensity? Are they doing it against quality opposition? And are they being precise and accurate in their thing? Now, I was going to get you to type into the chat with ways you could create challenge, but time is probably against me. So I'm going to just give you some of the ideas that I've thought of and that I've seen and that I think work really well. So how can you create challenge? First one, how do you know if someone is at a high level, a 10 out of 10, then it's a high level of opposition? That is Marine versus Tottenham. You can see the state of the pitch. Tottenham, if those players were assessed in that game, they wouldn't have got 10 out of 10 because they're playing against a load of butchers. You know, not to say butchers can't be for footballers, but these are professionals versus non-professionals. And so actually, the level of challenge, that game would have been so facile, so easy for those players that they wouldn't have been showing their full potential. If you have someone who is a county netballer and they're playing against maybe some year nines you've had to bring in, draft in on the day because some people didn't turn up and actually that none of the others can catch a ball, then that person who's a county performer won't be able to show how good they are. One way that you can do that is you playing yourself. I, I'm a pretend to be a badminton player. I'm just about better than my students. But what that means is that when I've got someone who I'm trying to push for an 8, 9, 10 in badminton, they'll play against me because it's showing them that because actually there's probably not many other students who would be good enough to challenge them. If you had a fantastic student, a sixth former, someone you could bring up and down, I'd do that. Um, the other things you can do is adding target zones. If someone is able to hit a very small specific area of the goal, that's showing that they are challenged in what they do. So how can you teach this over their GCSE journey? One, make sure you read the spec before you start. Make sure you know your skills. Two, consolidate skills through repetition. Isolate those skills first off and repeat it early on. Design small sided activities that can be adapted for different ability levels. You might have different sized goals with different abilities. Establish ability grouping in your sport. And by that, I mean you want predominantly your better pupils in one sport practicing against other people who are very good. So they're challenged, they get used to that. There's no point in someone who's very good playing against someone who's not very good in that sport. And different students will have different strengths across the range that you do. Isolate the skills in condition games and do this from the start of your journey. Don't just come right up to moderation in March thinking, ah, I've got moderation in two weeks. Let's start looking at these activities. Practice makes perfect. So if you want them to do it well on the moderation day, they need to have done that for two or three years. I think I've already covered those. And I did say that I've got a job out. And one thing I just thought as part of my due diligence, I've read 80 applications for our PE job right now. And I thought I'm just going to give you a helping hand of things and do's and don't do don'ts to do. This is nothing to do with theory PE, but I just think it's important. One, 
capitalize your name and your address. The amount of ones I've been off because I've got 80 to read. If you can't capitalize your name, I don't read it. Uh, don't start with, oh, I was inspired to become a PE teacher because of my own PE teacher. I would say at least 50% of the applications I read have that in. And it might be true. I was probably inspired to be a PE teacher because of my own Mr. Mullany. I believe Vicky would have also been taught by him. Um, but it's the most boring sentence in the world. Make it specific to the job description. So if they use key terminology from their school, we've seen HAPS and APPS and whatever in, in some of the people talking today, use that and also evidence your points. So don't just say you're organised. You need to tell me about a time when you had to be organised. OK, sorry, I have to run over there slightly, but I just thought that was important. That's fine. That's you, fine. Saved me, uh, you saved me two minutes on my uh, presentation on job applications at the end of the week. So. <laughs> If you could send me that slide, I'll flash it up again and everyone can have another look. Will do. Um, a huge right. thanks for that. So any questions? Yeah, I'll go. Um, I know, Ash, we mentioned this um, in one of the sessions last week. Um, and I know a lot of schools do it differently, but do you use your core PE lessons to um, influence your examination practical scores? If you have a large group of students doing um, examination PA in your core PE group? Uh, the answer I'd say to that is yes. If you, the more time that you have for them to practice, the better they're going to be, I think. Um, ultimately, be, each school's different. So I, I don't think I have that split. I believe you'll probably have like, they might have two hours of PE, one of which is practical, one of which is core, maybe. Is that the scenario you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd absolutely, yeah. If they're playing sport, why would you not want them to be practicing for when they're going to have to be assessed, I'd say. How you do that is going to be dependent on your scenario. Yeah, I think Josh is asking this question because my yeah. argument would be that core PE should be about the development of all students. And if you focus too much on the teaching, you the assessment of your examination, you lose those who aren't taking examination PE. So I personally, I think there needs to be a balance. Mm. Um, I think we we need to make core PE important for everybody and not just as an opportunity for those doing GCSE to um, to develop. But that's a that's a conversation, Tom, over a glass of um, something mm. cold and alcoholic. Um, so let's not get in. But we'll set that up at some time. The glass of something, as it were. Um, any other questions? Thanks, Josh. Uh, yeah, just um, on the point about um, creating challenge and the oppositions yeah. you were talking about. Um, how would you do that for sports where, obviously you talked about badminton, which is individual, so you can step in. Mm -hmm. um, what about team sports that people don't play very often or have kind of high ability in, and maybe there's just one kid who stands out? Great question. Um, and yeah, so that's in a scenario where you have that county netballer and the rest of your team can't catch a cold, never mind the ball, and that's not going to be good for the netballer. So what I'd do in that scenario is I'd ask that student who probably does play it outside of school, can you get your parents or, you know, I know PE teachers who would go to the game themselves to record it, and i say, can you record um, one of your games uh, for me? Uh, I'd give them a list of what I need to see. So, for example, you can't edit footage, you can't, uh, you should be able to see the ball at the whole time when you're videoing, and I'd have a list so that their parents know um, what it is. So in that scenario, if you've got an isolated elite performer, it's probably best that they don't perform it in school. And so rather than be submitting that as live evidence, I'd be submitting that as video evidence.
Dan, we had to do this with, so when the GCSEs were going off last time, there was a lots of kids in my son's rugby team who needed video footage. So I put together a, a shared drive, got lots of parents to record video. We, we pulled it. And I think what you'll find is that at most levels, there'll be other parents whose kids are playing the games that you can't play in schools, and they're going to be looking for evidence. So, you know, as a PE teacher talking to the parents and saying, well, we need this evidence, or talking to other people, other schools in the area and trying to collate how you gather that evidence can be a really proactive way of, of doing it. And then we actually ran a skill set on the university here. Um, my son's PE teacher came in and another teacher from another school came in, and we actually set up with players of the same ability who all played in the same school squad but from different schools the opportunity to do that so there are ways of facilitating it but you need to be quite proactive yeah mine was selfish because i just wanted um thomas to get recorded doing his rugby which was quite difficult no and I, I, that's definitely the best way to go but then it, it does come down to the quality of the recording so athletics is a tricky one i've seen videos where it's someone doing a 200 meters they've got one camera at the start finish line uh sorry the finish line and of course the start is 100 meters away and that I'm meant to be assessing that so it would be making it really clear to the parents or that's why PE teachers do it themselves is to what needs to be recorded and how okay okay I need to stop it there because we are running over my my summary is gone now so that won't take place but I want to give everybody the same amount of chance so huge thanks Tom thanks very much for that um I believe Vicky you're up next yep uh, just two seconds. I will be. Mine's quite quick, I'm afraid. It's a. Uh, I don't apologise. I'm sure you know Ray and Jenny won't mind since we're. Uh... <laughs> um, I was trying to share my screen, but it didn't work. So bear with me a second. Let me try turning it off again. It's that one, isn't it? it is it? Yeah, I don't know why it's not there. Hmm. I will do it this way. It's fine. Um, that's very strange. Although. It can't be as bad as losing your whole class in a in a breakout room like happened the other day. So, <laughs> um, okay. So I have known Ash for quite a few years now. Obviously, did my undergrad, my masters with him, and then he moved away. Um, also, an AQA moderator, and um, yeah, I've been working at a nice little school in um, Surrey for a few years now. We are really small, so I've got um, quite a mixed ability group. We're quite lucky we've got two, two GCC groups each year, but they are very much mixed ability. So I've been using some dual coding to try and aid their knowledge recall. So essentially, a little bit of background, it's just verbal and visual information. Okay, So we're not looking at learning styles, not looking at kinesthetic, not looking at um, visual, verbal, anything like that. We are just looking at the use of two different types of information to represent the same thing. OK, um, this helps students to, to basically create a mental image for themselves of what it is that you are talking about. OK, so by providing two versions of the same piece of information, students are more likely to retain that information because of the mental picture that they have created for themselves. OK, so for my low ability students, when we're doing knowledge recall, I found that if I give them that image, they are able to tell me the associated key term or the associated definition from that. So for me, it's just really simple. I've got some examples here. So we've already talked a bit about command words. We've talked a bit about um, those longer answer questions. And it, my students really struggled with what each of those words meant. So I created a, a little infographic for them with this dual coding on so they could start to associate that image with what it was they had to do. 
I also created a, a knowledge recall booklet, which had um, each of the units on the AQA spec and I made that a dual coding booklet. So as you can see, it's got some images that associate with the word. They had to give a sporting example and a definition, which you know worked really well for them because they were some of them were that lower ability. It also helped the higher ability because it was reaffirming what they'd already learned. Um, yeah, here's some more examples. I'm not a big fan of take notes, so I like to create worksheets that require them to sort of fill in gaps so we can spend a lot more of our time on questions, applying the knowledge that they're learning and sort of accessing that higher level thinking within my lessons. I find that this dual coding allows them to access that higher level because they've already got that knowledge recall. They can then go on to the next step as well. A um, couple more examples here. So planes and axes, all of us that have taught that will know that it's a, a real sticking point for students. It's something that they really struggle with the biomechanics, the, the levers, all of that is something that's really difficult for them. So giving them as many pictures, as that extra bit of information really helped to draw it out from them when they were answering questions for me. And then another page from that knowledge recall booklet. OK, so like I say, really simple dual coding, really helping to to apply that knowledge. And even in some of the worksheets, like the, the starter activities that we do, it might be that I give them a few symbols and they've got to apply their knowledge to that as well and tell me what the definition of that may be. Um, and then I, I just wanted to do a little quick, I'm very old school in the way that I teach um, my GCCPE. I like to give them exam questions for every single homework or a topic on a page. And the reason for that is because I like to do my peer assessment and sort of self-assessment at the start of the lesson before they do their sort of starter activity. So they will mark normally a green pen task at the start of the lesson, using the mark scheme to help them identify where they've missed out on points, but normally as a peer assessment activity. So they'll swap with someone of a similar ability in the class. They will then go through, mark that, and then they can start to understand exactly what the exam board is asking for, exactly what the question means and what the answer to that is from AQA or AQA, so or Edexcel or whoever else. It gets them so familiar with how the example wants them to write the answers, what content counts as marks, etc. Um, we then might do an activity where they have where I pick one question that I know they probably answered poorly um, and they have to rewrite that using the marking points that have been given. And then I've got this um, in the bottom here, this um, sort of marking grid that I created for students so they can essentially go through and mark either their own or their peers work and look at where they are in each of those brackets. So we've talked a lot about A01, A02, A3 today. And I think as a trainee teacher, that's something that is massively important to get your head around, okay? Because it's vitally important that you understand what A01, A02 and A03 are. So we've spoken about them being the knowledge, the application, um, and essentially the evaluation. So I always use no apply, say why with my students. So it's just really simple for them. Put down what you know, um, sort of, say why you've put that so apply it and then tell me why you've put that as well um just helps like deb said with that higher level thinking of the longer answers and then the other thing that i do so i only really ever do two types of homework and that's exam questions or topic on a page my exam questions always encompass things that we've done previously in the course rather than just that lesson because like we said before it's interleaving that previous learning so that they can have a full rounded knowledge rather than something that we did start of year 10 them trying to remember it for their mocks a few weeks ago and, and it not being there because we haven't practiced it um so yeah this other thing that we do so it's a mind map that we do at the end of every topic and it's structured by me so i'll give them the areas that we've gone through um and they go away for homework they create that topic on a page and there's a couple of ways we do it we either break down the elements so each 
students are in a, a group of three or four, they have to focus on one area and then we make a big mind map together or they do their own and then we pass that around um, at the start of a lesson for other people to add extra stuff on. The ones that they think are the best, we photocopy, give out and everyone has a copy of that to put up. So um, yeah, like I said, for me, really simple, really quick, I'm afraid, whistle stop tour of a couple of things I do that I find really quite useful and have actually made massive differences in terms of their, they were less stressed for their mocks because they didn't have to make all their revision resources from scratch. They'd done them as we went through at the end of each topic. So it was a case of go back to that topic on a page, have a little look through, make my flashcards from it, add more detail to it, etc. Um, and the dual coding just helped with that knowledge recall. So, yeah, sorry, Ash, wish to stop talking for me. No, don't apologise. It's, um, you know, saves for me waxing ly lyrical. Um, so first of all, I keep saying that Ray's up next and she's not. So I apologise, Ray. That's me. You're, you're more than welcome here. That's, that's absolutely fine. But you, you're not even on my list of people to present. So I keep saying you. I've got uh, um, Polly and Jenny next. So that's fine. So apologies to that. OK, um, being old school is fine. I think, you know, real basics. And what we're talking about here is lots of different ways of doing the same thing. So and, and people will take, as we've said throughout the PGC, you will you will become your own teacher and you will take some of these ideas and that's what it's all about i do not want mini anybody's i want you to be the teacher that you want to be so that's fine so any questions for vicky i mean i think sorry i just i would just add i think what deb's and i and i think it was lisa said all of us said the same thing it's about that making sure that you're putting those little quizzes in the questions, recapping exam questions consistently, because it, as soon as the students learn how to answer those questions, the format is going to be the same for, for, for any topic that comes up, but the structure is the same. So it's about giving them the knowledge and the ability to, to sort of structure their answers and, and pull that from them. So I think all of us have kind of said the same thing in that respect. Um, it's knowing the rules of the game. It's yeah. knowing, you know, what what they're expected to do so that there's commonality throughout every student in every school. And that's the challenge for the exam board. So it is a bit of a game to play and it's understanding how that game is played, which is really important. Yeah, and the same as Tom alluded to with the practical as well. It's exactly the same, knowing what the exam board's asking of you and, and almost teaching to that in some respects. How you get there is up to you, but there are a few common things that are the same for all of us. The biggest take home for me, I think, is um, read the exam spec and it sounds blindingly obvious but it's not read it once it's actually read it 50 times and it's know it backwards and it's understand so you know it's yeah go over know it and know it deb's question yeah i haven't got the chat box actually i was just gonna put this in the chat box but you're talking about the exam spec something that often informs um when i'm going through exam questions with kids and um, maybe for you as well, well, Vicky, is uh, using the examiner's reports. Yeah. So talking about maybe a, a coping model of, of, of modelling there, I might say I, I might actually model the common problem that the examiner's report has has um, has highlighted that, that pupils did. And I think that sort of any materials from the exam board mm. can be really, really useful. I totally agree. And I think the other thing that I've used that I didn't necessarily use early on in my teaching was the every exam board has a list of subject specific vocabulary that is your your bible that is a definition they want that is exactly how they want students to present key terms so make sure that you are familiar with it and make sure that they are as well because it doesn't matter what edxl say if aqa want this a bit like ash said with his son doing the three subjects if aqa want a certain way of putting it they only want that so you, you've got to make sure that you're teaching to their bible essentially 
Lucy, and then we'll move on to Polly, who's next. Uh, another thing that I think is really important is um, what Vicky just been talking about, about those uh, uh, exam questions. A lot of the time I show an example of an exam question and get the kids to mark it, and they don't know where to start. So I find the best starting point is to show them a full six mark answer so they know what they're looking for to then give them something different next time so they can pull and see those examples because you can't expect them to mark a question where they don't know what they're marking about and seeing where those marks are picked up so actually giving them uh, a full example beforehand and then and then model it a little bit later yeah totally agree and that's where i think the, the peer assessment comes in really useful if their homeworks are exam questions and you've got them in front of you at the start of the next lesson, they pass it around to whoever else, they're marking someone else's, all the while you could have an example in front of you with a visualiser like Deb said, and literally go through it step by step with them, mark scheme on the board, split screen, an example in front of them, off you go. Yeah, and it's one of the things, and we're going to move on to pop, to Papolia now, so just as a closure, we ask kids to finish their exams and then sit and read through their own questions. And if they've never had practice reading through their own questions, then they can't improve them. So it's really important that they're reading through the stuff so that they can acknowledge where they've made their mistakes, even 10 minutes after they've written the answer, which is the hardest time to go through your own artwork is when you already know what you meant to say. But that's the practice that they want. OK, huge thanks, Vicky. Thank you very much. And we'll pass on to Polly. Right. I will try and be as brief as possible, Ash. Let's see. Um... Be as brief as you need to be. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm hoping that you can see the screen. Praying and hoping. Yes, we can. Wonderful. Okay, so um, really, really briefly, uh, I'm Polly. I also did my PGC with Ash six years ago now, five, six years ago. Uh, I yeah, trained thanks my for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I also did my master's at Loughborough. I'm currently the director of sport at St Albans High School for Girls. And much like Tom, just very quickly going to plug that we have a PE job just gone up. So anyone that's interested in that, please, uh, please get in touch. Um, and I also, the details, I'll pass it out. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Ash. Um, and I also examine for OCR as an A-level PE um, specialist, specifically looking at exercise physiology. However, I actually teach AQA now, so kind of got a bit of crossover from knowing a bit about two different examples there, um, mainly A-level, kind of by default, I guess, just from a willingness early on, especially during um, my NQT year and also during training, I was exposed to quite a lot of A-level teaching. Um, and naturally over the past six years, I've kind of just led into teaching a lot more A-level and that kind of being the majority of my teaching load now. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about kind of exam diagnostics. So looking at exam responses, predominantly in A-level, but this will obviously apply for GCSE and also for BTEC Sport for those of you teaching those courses. And I guess the biggest thing is, why is it important? So we talk a lot about kind of having concrete subject knowledge and the ability for students to understand what they're doing and kind of taking that information beyond the curriculum. And all of those things are obviously highly essential for engaging the students in a love for the subject, that kind of scholarship of your own subject and everyone that is here today obviously feels that way about physical education. But we also have to think about why is it important for them to be handling mark schemes and kind of grappling with exam content. And a lot of people have already discussed many of the things that I'll probably touch on during this quick presentation. So apologies for the repetition, but hopefully reassuring for those who are doing the trade already that we're all kind of in the same boat. But for me, the biggest reason why we would 
do exams other than getting them used to that environment and kind of de-stressing students the idea of it is this idea of identifying misconceptions early and the earlier we can intervene with a misconception and correct it the better the modification will be so i wanted to explain this concept a little bit to you and it's something you may have come across before and it's called hypercorrection effect so the idea of a hypercorrection effect is that making mistakes is good so it's a positive thing to be wrong but it's even better when we correct that. OK, so we want to encourage students to be in positions where they're not going to know the knowledge. They are going to make mistakes. But then that assertion of correction is there and prevalent for all. Now, the earlier we can engage with this correction, the earlier we can modify or alter the behaviour or the response, the higher the chances that correction will be successful i.e. the more likely it is that the student in the future will put the correct response. And the really interesting thing about this as well is that the more confident you are in a response, the better the hypercorrection will be. So if you're 100% certain that what you are saying is correct in an exam or correct in a, whether it's a low stakes quiz or just in a conversation, if you are wrong in that situation and you are corrected, the likelihood of you then retaining that information and then getting it correct the next time is substantially higher than someone who throws out a guess is wrong and corrected. So I just wanted to show this as an example. So if you take this into your head now and I asked you what's the only man-made structure visible from space, you've probably all got in your head an idea of what you think you can see as a man-made structure from space. And you're probably starting to think of maybe the Great Wall of China. But that's actually wrong. The Great Wall of China is not visible from space, OK? Um, but it probably was your default answer. In fact, mostly the only things we can see from space are kind of lights in massive skyscraper buildings. But there aren't, the Great Wall of China is actually not visible. But if you were absolutely certain when I showed you that question that the answer was going to be the Great Wall of China, the next time you're in this position or you're having a discussion about potentially space and what's visible, the likelihood is you will now not give that response. Whereas if you weren't certain or didn't have an answer for that, it's possibly less likely you're going to retain that that isn't visible from space. So it's about the strength of that connection. So in terms of then what we can do when we've found errors, so we found errors in students' work and we can do that through various methods such as the low uh, stakes quizzing that we spoke about earlier and I will touch on later, but it's about what we do now. So what are we going to do that's going to implement that last long lasting change in students' responses and how they will engage in examinations? So for me, the biggest thing that I found success with over my years is modelling. And we've spoken about this quite a lot this afternoon, which is great. So I took for an example here, synoptic responses. So those of you that have taught A-level will understand this idea that some of the questions and the way they ask, ask the long mark questions at the end of the exams ask you to not only find one piece of information, so recalling one section of the specification, but multiple sections of the specification together and modeling something which is longer. So what I've done in the past, or what I still do now, is I will give an example question. Okay, so I will pick out a previous exam paper question. So this, for example, is a 20 mark question taken from physiology. Okay, and you can see in here already, it's quite clunky, it's quite wordy, it's quite lengthy. And there are many different substrands to this question that students may get lost in the pitfalls of. I then give students two different responses to that question, which is a big hint here as well. When you get students to do their mark, either if they're typing it, always save it in an area on your computer and kind of keep it forevermore, or if they're handwriting it, photocopy it. 
because you'll never know when you need these responses again. So they'll have candidate A and candidate B. Candidate A and candidate B will answer these questions in very distinctive ways. So you will start to give them a stanza like this. So for me, I probably print this out just on a Word document and hand it out to them. So they'd have all a candidate A, all a candidate B. And I would ask them to go through with a highlighter and identify the different AO points. So AO1, AO2 and AO3, as we've already discussed this afternoon. And I may give them the mark scheme if this is their first time doing this. They would be presented with a mark scheme initially. So they also are being an examiner. They're handling the mark schemes. They're seeing where the misconceptions lie. Regularly in exams, um, exam mark schemes, it will also put on the right hand side what not to accept as well as what to accept. And students need to understand when they're getting misconceptions and conceptions correct and wrong. So they would have something like this. I would give them a percentage of time to go through the response, maybe 20 minutes. They may do it individually. They may do it with a partner. Depends on who you've got in the class. And then once they have identified both candidate A and candidate B's kind of different AO points, I would ask them to give just a couple of what and wells and an EBI and a mark that they believe before going through the papers one by one and me showing them and extrapolating where they're picking up the marks. So what's going to stand as a knowledge and understanding? Where are they giving practical examples? Where are they developing those points to get those higher level thinking? And I'd go through that just for candidate A initially, going through what went well and what they could do better, giving them the response they'd receive, and then moving on to candidate B and so on. Okay. So we'd look at two differing responses. Ideally, we'd use peer peer um peer responses with this, like I said, using them before, but you obviously can write out better ones if that's if that needs to happen. Another thing that's really important, I know this has been discussed, is examiner's reports. Examiner's reports are so helpful, not only for looking for misconceptions, but also for when you're trying to predict what's going to be in exam papers year on year. They will always put in questions that cause confusion as levelers, so they can use them when they decide what they're going to assess and not assess in the following year. So just really quickly, examiner's reports are well worth touching on. Another thing I would do based after that modelling is wash up lessons. So any time that you do an exam, you would have a wash up lesson after you've marked everything. You pick out the clear areas that students would need to improve on. So, for example, this was when I was teaching sports psychology, whole practice, part practice and cognitive theory were areas they needed to develop along with their 10 mark responses. And then you would do some reteaching. OK, so you'd go back through, re-deliver parts of that, specifically looking at individual student problems or areas that they might want to improve. And then you would go back and review it. Which brings me on to this idea here as well. And we've spoken a little bit about interleaving this afternoon, but it all kind of comes down from Bjork's theory of disuse. So I know it was touched on right at the start, this idea of the difference between retrieval strength and storage strength and the idea that we're actually wanting to improve their storage strength rather than an individual's retrieval strength. So if you were asked a question at the end of the lesson, kind of like an exit ticket, you'd expect probably 99% of students to be getting that correct. If you then ask the same question three months down the line, that would be a much lower proportion. And that comes back to, and you'd seen before that forgetting curve, the idea that you're going to only remember something in one place if you don't review it. So this idea of actually allowing students to remember something at the time, forget it and return to it, will actually lead to that increase in strength. So for me, I would probably do, if I saw an A-level class, let's say six times a fortnight, one of those six lessons would be purely based on doing that kind of modeling exam feedback responses but it wouldn't necessarily be on a topic that we've just been recently looking at it would be something they've done in the past so they can bring back that information they've previously looked at and increase the likelihood of them being able to achieve in the future and this comes down to again when you're kind of teaching those different concepts 
Thank you. So you've got the different ideas for blocking where you teach things in sections. So you'd have your different topics compared to that interleaving idea where we might do a little bit of cardiovascular, then a little bit on biomechanics and then a little bit on say, Wiener's model of attribution. And you would sub up those in your exam responses. So they're being exposed to a plethora of different options and different strategies to overcome those questions rather than being specific to those areas. And this really helps with synoptic assessments. This really benefits A-level teaching. And this is just some evidence that has been looked at that before. The idea we're going to retain probably if we block work a lot more immediately after we've learned it. But comparatively, when we start to look at over time, the idea of chiving up that information and looking at it in different ways, if we interleave that, it will be much stronger as we move through the weeks. So these are just some really quick ideas on how you can kind of get those retrieval activities in before you want to move into the modelling or during that time. Stop market sessions, the idea that students are given a certain amount of, I would use paper clips, but you could use counters, in pairs, and they're given a wide range of questions which they can purchase from you. Each one of those questions will pertain to how many marks are available, and they give in their paper clips to answer the question. If they successfully answer the question, they get double the paper clips back, and you proceed to do that throughout the lesson, which obviously then gives them different levels of challenge and differentiation based on their own personal ability, and then there would be a prize for the winner at the end with the most paper, paper clips. Low stakes quizzing, I won't spend too long because we've discussed it for ages, but there's various platforms out here that can really engage students in kind of picking up those retrieval practices that are so imperative when we're coming to the actual exam. And finally, for me, kind of charting their work. So doing knowledge checks or personal learning checks to identify where students are having those misconceptions so you can intervene quickly and get them to review their work and set appropriate exam questions and also surgery sheets. So the idea that they're actually going through each different part of the specification and identifying themselves where they want to improve. And that's it. Thanks, Polly. I've just put um, a question in the chat. If you could give me, uh, uh, trainees, if you can give me a, um, a thumbs up or a thumbs down, if you, well, a thumbs up, I only need to know who's seen it. So have you seen an examiner's report? And Tom, to come back to your answer, um, yeah, Leach did bowl uh, punt this thing. We've stumped by folks, so that's in the chat as well, just for your uh, your information. Although England are likely to lose the second test, uh, but let's not get into that. Um, okay, good. So people, not quite a few people have seen an examiner's report. Keep keep keep, keep going. Um, I, that's something that's come out a lot in the in these processes. So realize what's happening. Uh, try to get hold of them. If you haven't seen one, put it on your to do list for phase two. Um, in terms of the exam board, because it looks like it would be really, really helpful. Huge thanks for that, Polly. Any questions? Ray? Hi, Polly. You're right. Hi, Ray. Hiya. Um, can you go through the stock marketing um, idea again? I, quite, I really, really liked it, but I didn't catch the whole of it. Sorry. Yeah, so, so the idea would be that either you would have, have individuals working on their own or if they're lower confidence or you want to kind of pair people up in abilities, they'd work in a pair. You give them X amount of paperclips, so let's say every pair gets 10 paperclips for the lesson. Ahead of time, you would have cut up lots of different questions and put them into different categories. So kind of one mark responses, two marks, three marks, six mark questions. They would then decide themselves which question they'd like to answer first. So it might be as a pair, they think, OK, we'd like to have a go at a six mark question. They'd give you six of their paper clips and you give them the question. They then spend as long or as little time on that question as they need to try and work out to get a full response. You would then be called over when they're done. 
have a look at their response. If they get six out of six on that response, then they keep that response and then they get 12 paperclips back. So they double their paperclip value. If they've only got, let's say, three marks on that question, that then is when as a teacher, you can have the discussion of, OK, so why have you only got three? What do you need to improve to get six? You can give me one of your paperclips now and I will help you. I'll give you a hint. Or you can try and work this out yourself and tease it out further. Um, and naturally, what you'll find is then students that need to work on those longer mark questions tend to go for the higher stakes anyway, because they tend to think, oh, I'll go for the big ones. So they spend longer looking at those questions, whereas students that are probably more needing retrieval often will go for those quick wins. And then the idea being at the end of the session, whoever's got the most paper clips would win a prize, whatever you deem that to be at your school but they're really i found from experience of doing this for many years now these lessons are really really valuable not only in terms of almost tricking students into doing exam questions and thinking that there's a real incentive to do them but also in terms of the conversations that will naturally come up and the misconceptions that will arise from students doing those questions but at different points in the session thank you so much thank you there's so many teachers yeah there's, there's i got on my screen you're all leaning forwards like this it's like oh this is brilliant <laughs> yeah thanks boy that is, i'm going to use that myself another question how do you plan for interleave so i teach a level myself and i've always loved the idea of it never quite yeah worked out how to plan for it over time yeah so what i would say initially is when you're doing your first kind of level of um planning for the year thinking of a level as well as if you're in a position like myself, I'm fortunate that we don't do AS exams, we just purely do a two-year course. I first of all look at all of the information that they need to be taught over the two years and try and work out what would marry up best at different points. So obviously the AS textbook as it's presented, for example, may not necessarily be the order in which you'd want to deliver that content over two years if you've got that flexibility. So that's the first thing I do is kind of curriculum map out the two-year programme. So when they first are exposed to content, I might have two um, content topics which are quite similar in their outcome in terms of they might likely be synoptically linked in the exam, but not necessarily are directly relatable. So, for example, I might teach in exercise physiology, maybe ergogenic aids um, at one point to look at that. And then, for example, in sports psychology, I might look at something like reaction time and um, memory models. And the idea then being how they would look at how ergogenic aids may have an impact on reactions. There might be teething links there between kind of um, stimulants and how that might then affect Hicks law or look at reaction time and response time and information processing. So despite the fact that they are completely different topics in themselves and interleaving them in such a way gives them the opportunity not to see those areas together, the mm. synoptic links become stronger. So it's not necessarily you would always interleave straight off, but when you're doing that kind of reviewing and mapping of that curriculum over the two years, you might take into account when you would see those things. And then when you do those exam question lessons, and it, again, it depends on how lucky you are for how often or frequently you see the students, but I always would be examining something that we hadn't covered at that moment in time. And the students then, because they're exposed to it so frequently, don't see it as, oh, no, we're looking at schema theory and we haven't done it since September. They think, oh, we're doing schema theory. I haven't looked at this since September. I need to now think about how I'm going to answer these questions or how I'm going to try and challenge myself in this way, because it comes so embedded in their practice. Great. Thank you. OK, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to move on. I'm going to keep this call open after.
afterwards once we finish so people can chat so that'll be fine but jenny huge thanks for your patience um and you are last but by no means least um and thank you very much and over to you thank you i'm just going to see if i can get this to share quickly just let can you let just let me know if this is yep if there you are you're on so is this good that's what retrieval practice is yeah so you just need to go to start there we go excellent okay so yeah last but by no means least and um yeah so thank you for inviting me to come and speak to you today um obviously i'm going to be talking about gcp and this is um discussing retrieval practice to hopefully improve stickability um particularly with theory in mind um i teach gccpe um i'm at sarah bernal school in east london um i've been head of p there for the last six and a half years um, and I, I know that obviously a lot of people have kind of mentioned quite a bit about this already. So um, I might skirt over some bits or there might be some slides that have maybe already been touched on. Um, so I might skirt over things a little bit. But I've already sent the presentation to Ash. So if there's anything maybe that you, you actually didn't want me to skirt over, I can obviously get that sent through um, and we'll see what happens a bit later on if you want to kind of get in contact and discuss it further. Um, but what we're going to look at briefly today is kind of a bit deeper into retrieval practice. So what is it? Why do we use it, particularly in examinable PE? And kind of how do we use it? So using those examples from school settings of retrieval practice. So, Ash, I hope that this is OK. Um, but I've actually I realised that I was last and that people might, you know, have kind of been bogged down and sat down for a while. So I'm actually going to ask you to do a do now task that's hopefully going to only take a couple of minutes. And I'm Absolutely. hoping, is that OK? So all I would like you to do, and this is something that I've done with students, and it would kind of put things in context a little bit later on with the slides. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes just to create a really short story that links together these six pieces of information. So really similar to what Vicky said earlier about dual coding. This is an, another example of dual coding. And I'd just really like you to try and create a really short story that links all of these six pictures together in order. Um, so it's really particularly important that they go in order. And um, this is <laughs> something new that I've discovered and hoping it works. But you've got two minutes and the bomb will go off in two minutes. Do they so, have to think about it or write it? Um, think about it if they can, write it down if they really want to, that's not a problem either. So write about it, think about it, whatever you find kind of more comfortable. And if you kind of come up with a, your story early, um, I can't see the chat, but if you could get it into the chat, that would be absolutely fantastic. It doesn't have to be anything elaborate. Um, it can be as elaborate or as random as you like. Um, it's just a really short story that links those six pictures together. So something that maybe you think will help you to remember these pieces of information particularly. So we've got one minute and 18 seconds before this bomb goes off. Sorry Ash, the chat function is not, it's not on I don't think. Uh, okay. Well I'm, I'm writing in it now so I don't know how that works. I don't think anyone that's a presenter can type in the chat. Uh, thank you. Uh, except me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to not make you a presenter anymore, Ray? You're ruining my story here. I start raising. Sorry, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just leave it. All right, you're now an attendee. Oh, 
I think I've actually stopped the bomb from going off actually by changing presentation mode to see if I can see chat. So I think oh, so I get more time. I give another 20 seconds and I'll be, be harsh with it because I think I was down to about 50 seconds by the time I exited it. So it's lava, alien, disgusted, tentacles, tuna and archery. Some really random pieces of information there. And it will become clear why I've asked you to do this, hopefully, in a moment. Okay, I'm going to say that's the bomb going off, because I've just exited it and completely ruined the bomb explosion. Um, we'll, we'll hopefully see that again a little bit later. But um, obviously, Ash, I can't see the chat function, but is there anybody that has been really brave and has written their story in? Yeah, me. No. Yeah, go for it. Why not? No, no, no. I would... <laughs> Oh, I'll do it because I won't embarrass it, but people have. Okay, the lava burnt Bob the alien who was disguised, disgusted by this. He went home to his wife who used her slimy tentacles made, using her slimy tentacles made tuna pasta bait for dinner. They scoffed this up before they went to the archery club, a best-selling story guaranteed. Uh, An alien had to, ha, had to disguise himself while delivering tuna over a lava pit to a tuna-loving ten, tentacle. Doesn't seem to be in the right order, Sophie, but I love the story. It's a great story and it's really good. Um, really love that. Um, I'm actually going to come back to this. So I'm actually <laughs> going to kind of leave that on tenterhooks a little bit and I'm going to come back to it in a moment. And there's a reason for that too, but really great stories. And thank you to everybody that's obviously kind of put it in the chat as well that I, I can't see at the moment. So I'm actually going to go back a stage now um, and I'm going to just talk briefly through um, the diagram on the right hand side, particularly just to discuss what retrieval practice is. I know it's been touched on before, but we're going to go a slight bit deeper into it. So obviously, when you present new information to students, um, we tend to give them quite a bit of information to take in and they obviously input everything. So that's the purple strand. They then obviously try to remember as much as they possibly can, usually. Um, but anything that they can't remember by the end of the lesson, that unattended information or things that they think are irrelevant, they get completely lost. So they just are discarded almost immediately. Things that are important to them and they think they need to remember will go into their working or their short term memory. So that will tend to, to last a very short period of time, but you'll tend to find that they'll remember quite a bit kind of in a very short, literally what it says on the tin, in their short term. Anything that's unrehearsed, again, is going to be discarded, is going to be lost or significantly faded. However, if they have the opportunity to revisit that information quite regularly and rehearse it via exam questions, whether it's maybe all the other plethora of kind of ways that we can retrieve information that have already been discussed and talked about and we'll discuss later, that information will actually make its way to the long-term memory, which means it's being stored. So it means that obviously students are able to kind of hold on to that AO1, that content-based information in their minds. But really going back now, obviously we've done the diagram, we've kind of worked through that model. Jones Jenny, you're not playing your presentation, you know that. I'm I, not in presentation mode for it, that's but can fine. you see it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, I just... Right, that, that's all, all I need at the moment. Um, I will press um, present in a moment, there's a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. Quiet. Um, <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine. Um, so obviously Joan says, the act of recalling learned information from memory with little to no support. So students are not getting help when they're retrieving. And every time the information is retrieved or an answer is generated, 
it changes that original memory to make it stronger. We often think we've learned a piece of information, but we sometimes struggle to recall it. And it's that struggle that improves our memory and our learning. And by trying to recall the information, we're obviously strengthening it. So, for example, a way to put it in context is, have you ever been in a quiz, maybe particularly in lockdown one, where they were kind of all the rage and a question's asked. And for the life of you, you cannot remember it, but you know you know the answer. And it's so frustrating and annoying. Well, again, it's probably because that information has faded or you just haven't needed it for a while. So this phrase of use it or lose it becomes really, really important. And this is really interesting. Even though it's from 1959, they're still saying, cognitive scientists are still saying it's still so relevant today that almost all our information that is stored in that short-term memory, in that yellow box, and is not rehearsed, can be lost within 18 to 30 seconds, which is, you know, really crazy. Now, I'm going to put this hopefully now back into context. So we're going to go back to the task. We're retrieving our little stories. Now I'd like you just to really quickly, I'm going to give you probably 30 seconds, I'm just really conscious of time and overrunning. These words direct, so directly relate to the pictures in some way. So these key words, semilunar valve, pulmonary artery, right ventricle, vena cava, vena cava, right atrium and tricuspid valve obviously directly relate to the pictures. Ash, chap function, if you could help me out, just is there any way, really quickly, you know that these words link in some way, how are they linking? Don't ask me, I know nothing. <laughs> is there anyone in the chat function though that can see the direct link here between the pictures and the words? I'm waiting for these geniuses to, to, let, to let me know. Blood flow? Yes, it is blood flow through the pathway of the heart, but how do the words on the right-hand side connect to the pictures or the words underneath? It is absolutely the pathway of blood through the heart, though. Somebody pick a word and associate it with disgusted, I guess, or tentacle or yeah. tuna. If not, this is going to be me potentially giving you the answers to save time. So the, the words on the right. Rhyme hang on, hang on. on. Sounds similar. Yeah, so they're really similar. It's really tricky to find words that rhyme directly with vena cava or tricuspid. So we found words that are really, really similar. So the students are actually finding, similar to what Vicky was saying, those images they've got in their head, they've then got a story, they're then linking the actual technical words. So we've got one here. So lava is blood ejected from the heart. Alien is the four chambers of the heart. Okay, slightly missed here. So it's actually vena cava lava, alien, right atrium, disgusted, tricuspid, tentacles, right ventricle, tuna, semilunar archery, pulmonary artery. So the kids are learning really similar rhymes to the pathway of blood on the right-hand side of the heart, which they really struggle with. They tend to find that there's so many technical terms that they can't actually remember the order exactly. 
And so what we do is we actually go through a process whereby we're finding similar rhymes to the technical terms. They're not always as easy to find exact rhymes for. And then they're directly linking those dual coded pictures with the rhyme and then they're taking it through. And we tend to find that they remember the information a little bit easier when they're going back and thinking and they're really struggling. They tend to remember the picture or their story and then they can link the direct words or they can get it near enough. This is kind of like a, an anagram. So set fast uh, rugby league, which was the one that Connie used. I guess it's similarish to that. Really except similar. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to move on. So why is retrieval practice so effective? They've been kind of cognitive scientists again have been researching this for about a hundred years. So it's been a long time. Um, and retrieval practice has been found to be the most powerful and effective way of improving learning, in Dudnowski's opinion. Um, teachers are often tempted to squeeze as much content into one lesson to respond or keep up with the scheme of learning. Um, there's often sometimes external pressures from schools um, with regards of how much content we're getting through. Um, and actually, this is one way of kind of making sure that we don't just ignore the fact that we need to keep going back to that information as has already been um, kind of intimated towards. Um, this I found really interesting from Diadell and Rose. Teachers provide cues and prompts to increase students' performance in a, in a lesson, but pupils are really skilled at mimicking what they think teachers want to see or hear. And that comes actually down to them learning that mimicry in primary school. So that's something that is completely learned behaviour. They, they know what they think you want to see and that's what they often provide you with. Um, and no matter how many times we revise topics, if students are not rehearsing it, obviously that's going to disappear quite considerably. Uh, we've got limited teaching time in lessons and we need to maximise that learning as much as we possibly can. Um, and obviously it's already been mentioned about lower stakes for students and retrieval focus, uh, retrieval tasks focusing more on strengthening their learning rather than actually assessing them and it being about being a test. Um, and obviously I've, I'm not going to go over Horvath because that's obviously already been kind of gone through. Now, obviously, the next way we did this was we gave them keywords to remind them of their story, but wasn't giving them a direct kind of way of actually the lava wasn't there it was magma so it's kind of going oh hang on a minute it wasn't magma it was lava this is just another way of taking the students through a retrieval task that we were going to do um but again conscious of time and i'd really like to get onto the examples i think this is potentially going to be the, uh, the most helpful this one's already been touched on um slightly i think by lucy potentially a bit earlier um but this is a retrieval grid this is often given to students um in a starter activity so obviously there's last lesson questions, there's two lessons ago, there's questions from three lessons ago, and then the blue ones are a long time ago. They're going to be really struggling potentially to answer the blue and green questions. They may find the red and yellow ones slightly easier because it's more fresh in their mind. Um, but this is a really good activity to use with students. And you'll see that actually quite a few of the questions are longer answer questions because it's really about that struggle. They are supposed to be struggling. They are supposed to be finding it really difficult and really hard at times. Obviously not with all questions, hopefully, because it might seem a bit, you know, a bit tricky and they might end up giving up. But actually there's some questions there from last lesson that hopefully they can remember as well. There's loads of examples here from Twitter, because actually a lot of my examples are at school and with COVID. Um, I haven't been back for a while, so um, just a, a plethora of amazing examples that have already been mentioned on other people's presentations. But there's lots here, so I'm going to actually go to 
Um, I've, I'm just conscious of the fact that other people have mentioned certain things. So I'm actually going to go to example nine, um, which is a practical theory team challenge. So this is something that's just worked particularly well in our school. Um, we have found that actually providing retrieval in a practical theory lesson, so they are still active, they're still out of the classroom, they, our students really enjoy this, um, but they're actually retrieving questions from questions. I think Polly mentioned that um, earlier, and they're actually doing mini activities that um, kind of are practically minded, but they're actually doing those revision questions. So, for example, we've done it via the method of um, Super Mario Party. We've done Crystal Maze. We've done the Cube. We've done Million Pound Drop. Um, students can select their chosen topic of questions, so they can choose whether they do like an anatomy and physiology based question, pick socio-cultural questions. They could pick a sporting example question. So they get to choose their topic. The more points they earn as a team by retrieving, successfully retrieving information collectively, the more they, uh, more time they can earn to answer the final question, which tends to be kind of like a, a really tricky six mark question um, for OCR anyway. Um, and everyone's fully participative throughout the session. So students can also pick an individual, a pair or a group task to make sure that everybody's obviously included. Um, and this is something that we found actually with the collaboration, students feel confident, they feel motivated, they're fully engaged. It's got that slight competitive element there as well, um, but they're earning time. So if they do happen to get things wrong, again, something that Polly mentioned earlier, encouraging them to take risks and not being afraid to get something wrong as part of a group. Um, you know, it's really, really important that they go through that process and that they don't feel as though, um, you know, it's too overwhelming an experience. So there's there's kind of lots of ways for them to still struggle, but struggle in a really like a supportive environment whereby they don't feel negatively judged. Um, I don't know how I'm doing on time here, Ash. I feel like I'm, I'm rushing through as much as I possibly can. Um, but I'm just going to go through this as well. Um, eventually, this is kind of where we're getting to. The students have kind of got a minute to retrieve the pathway of the blood. This might be something that you could give them um, just in a picture format, maybe at the beginning of the next lesson from what they've done, um, obviously, that I showed you earlier. And that actually they're doing this now completely by themselves. I think it was, again, touched on by Deb earlier. Um, this whole idea of um, them trying it. Obviously, I do, we do, you do. They're, you know, they're, they're going through a different process there. And this is like at the end where they're doing it completely by themselves. Um, and they've got that information hopefully stored in their mind in that long term memory once they've retrieved it, maybe a little bit more. And this is where you'd kind of get to towards the end. Um, so I did about, about a minute. OK, perfect. Um, obviously, I've tried to whiz through that. The, the presentation has gone to Ash, so I've skipped over lots of the examples, but there's obviously self-marking low stakes multiple choice questions. There's retrieval practice, uh, a kind of like a football club kind of type of example there. There's revision clocks. There's something called a brain dump, uh, which obviously you can read through yourselves. Cops and robbers, a fixed the error grid. So there's lots and lots of different examples on there for you to kind of pull from if this is something that you think um, would maybe benefit your students when you kind of get, get onto placement or if you've really been there, something maybe you could take as a new thing. But 
last thing I think probably is a takeaway is that if there is any further readings, we really have whizzed through this about retrieval practice that you'd like to know a bit more about. These three books are really, really good. Um, there's probably these copies in the library or probably available at CPD library at a new school that they could potentially send to you. And at the bottom of that, there's also a free CPD course on retrieval practice written by Kate Jones, who did the pink book there. Um, and you get like a certificate at the end to say that you've kind of mastered that process with regards to retrieval practice. So I've put the link on there as well. So, yeah, whistle stop tour. And um, yeah, I'll hand back to you. Matt. The good stuff from the bad stuff. So when you see something like um, the retrieval practice, the practical example, uh, the gym based practical, how did you work out that was any good, um, <laughs> I guess? Uh, and then how did you model it for your own school? OK, um, so that was actually my example from social media. That was one of the ones that was actually from mine. Um, oh, yeah, then. Sorry, I was a brilliant example. How do I know it's any good? <laughs> not many of them were, actually. A lot of them were others. Um, but that one was mine. That was trial and error, to be honest. It was something where I had quite... Um, I had a lot of disengaged students in that class. Um, they, they left, actually, a little while ago. Um, a lot of them were quite disengaged, didn't like being inactive. So that was something that I wanted to try with that particular class because they really enjoyed the kind of the practical side and weren't as keen on the theory. So that was kind of like me problem solving on the spot of, right, if they really like practical and they're not so keen on sitting in a classroom, let's kind of merge the two things together and find new ways of um, kind of a bit more exciting and fun ways of doing revision because it can get quite, or retrieving information, it can get quite, um, you, you can get quite bogged down as a student, I think, um, particularly if you're doing it in kind of all subject areas. So for me, it was that. But I think you're right with social media. I think there's a lot that kind of goes out and it's absolutely fantastic that people share information. But I think it's so, so important. Actually, I think I tweeted about this about three weeks ago. That it's so important that you decipher what's right for your students and for your context there's so many people and it's fantastic for workload if somebody's produced something exactly how you wanted it to be. But it's also so important that you kind of go through that piece of um, work or resource or whatever it might be. And you make it really specific for your students and for your context and also decipher, is this something that will suit my students um, or is it just, you know, an all singing, all dancing resource that maybe they wouldn't respond very well to? Um, but I would encourage trial and error, but I think the biggest thing for me is, is adaption and adapting it to your context and to your students rather than just regurgitating somebody else's work or somebody else's resource. Absolutely. Can you give me the screen back? Uh, yes, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so can we just thank Jenny for her time and presentation, please? And now can we just thank everybody for their time and presentation, please. Thank you. And that's where our discussions ended. I'd like to thank Tom, Vicky, Polly and Jenny for their insights into teaching examination PE. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and hopefully you'll choose to catch up with us next time when we talk about outsourcing and high status testing.